Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 99. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, actually for the first time ever, we have two guests, and incidentally, two of our most requested guests. So we got them both at the same time. It is a a two-for-one deal for our listeners. We've got Lachlan Giles, and we've got Livia Giles, all the way from Australia. Lachlan, Livia, how are you doing? Very good, apart from the lockdown, but otherwise we're pretty good. <laughs> We've been stuck with each other for seven months now. So are you guys, what is the current status in Australia at the moment? I understand that you guys turned the dial back up on the lockdown again. Yeah, in our state. So it's only our state, which is Victoria, is under lockdown and everywhere else is basically as per normal. So but we've been yeah, yeah shut. We've, we've had a gym shut for seven months now. Oh, man, man. That's insane. Yeah, that's 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 rough. I mean, unfortunately, one of the things about jujitsu is it is one of those careers. Um, I was actually just on Stefan Kesting's podcast talking about that. And I mean, the unfortunate thing about this sport is like out of all of the jobs in the world that you could have, this is one that is just outsized impacted. I mean, even the other martial arts get it a bit easier because you can theoretically go and kick a heavy bag and at least get some exercise in if you're doing boxing or kickboxing. But man, with jujitsu, it's a it's a tough ride for sure. Yeah, I think I don't know. It's a it's a weird it's situation. It's a hard one where yeah. everyone should have the right to protest, but it's nearly like you know the the quicker we get it over and done with, then the quicker we can open up. In psychology, there is this thing called the prisoner's dilemma, where it's like a kind of a, a tough psychological question where there's a problem like this, and if everyone cooperates just perfectly, there's not much of a problem. But if one person chooses to go against it then there's a big problem. So how do you ensure that you get everyone to cooperate? I mean, it's a hard one because in, I mean, in our lifetimes, there's never been anything quite like this. And I, I think that it kind of caught all of us off guard by how quickly this happens. So man, I, it has definitely been an odd 2020 to say the least. I'm just hoping that, I mean, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I'm hoping that when the, the clock rolls over to 2021 and we say happy new year, it's just like clean slate. <laughs> we can put this behind us because man, it would be nice to, to get back to training full time for sure. So something that I I wanted to talk to you guys about, it's a concept that actually you had proposed, and it's something that our listeners had actually requested that we speak to you or really anyone of of your caliber about, is the concept of how to develop and create your own jujitsu style. And this is something that I've tried to get my head around for a long time as well. I think that, you know, everyone knows that as you train and get more experienced and move up the belts, everyone kind of develops a style. But I don't think many people put a lot of thought into how that happens or what that means. And it just kind of emerges organically. I mean, I can say speaking from my experience, when I was a, you know, a blue belt, I had a, an inkling of which moves I kind of liked and which ones I didn't. But it wasn't until I got to really black belt where I feel like 
I could articulate what that means when I say, hey, this is my style. And I'm not even sure that answer would be the same for everybody. So I guess my first question for both of you is, how would you define what a style is in the context of jujitsu? Yeah, oh, I'll go first. Um, I'd say it's it's really a set of moves or posi- probably a, like a position with a s- set of kind of, I'd say, techniques or principles or attacks that you like to to focus on and you kind of it would be like I guess your style would mean like you have your guard you have your favorite takedowns you have your favorite way of passing the guard and your favorite uh, position to try to set up and finish from and and each of them you've got your own favorite kind of technique selection within that Um, so I really think it's yeah it's about it's kind of like I guess your style is your whole game but each of it has kind of individual things where you could have multiple you know there's obviously a lot of different guards you could choose, but here where you kind of you end up choosing one and you try and force the game into that one style, so they have to play your game into so that you can take it to the next phase of the of jujitsu, essentially. Yeah, I think probably on top of that, uh, probably oh, it's not just competitors, but also whether you're you know slow or fast, or whether you're scrappy or uh, slow and precise. That's probably. Uh, even though it's more to do with techniques, that's probably a style as well, like very aggressive and, and scrappy versus gentler and, and slower. Yeah, so I suppose you're taking a more even broader yeah. look at it there, mm-hmm. looking yeah. at like uh, the pacing that you're yeah, using and yeah. so on. Yeah, um, Scrambles well, I, versus, you know. I suppose I, like I kind of – I mostly view style more as the – I guess the systems that you use. Yeah. You know, that, that's how I tend to approach it. Actually, I probably should as well. I think I think it is important that we – say like you know is it worth having a style or should Mm. you be you know like because there's kind of two options you have your game like the thing that you're good at or you try to get good at everything like it's kind of a to me it's very important that people actually don't try to at least at first don't try and learn everything like learn a style learn a, a system and get good at that and then over time you can branch out and learn more like i personally i would say i have quite a a broad style available to me. I can actually, you know, I can I can play all these different types of guards and so on. I still have my favorite, but I feel quite competent with different styles. I still have my favorite way to do it. But in, in developing someone's game, I think it is important to have a style rather than try to get good at everything. And I think people who try to learn everything at once and don't have some, have their favorite things actually end up not progressing as fast. Mm-hmm. I, I have to apologize to uh, L- Livia. I'm not I'm not super familiar with your style. I know Lachlan. I guess you. I'm I'm not quite sure again what your main style would be because I know you are well versed in a variety of positions. Of course, your leg locks are quite famous. After last year, you went on a tear. I remember the first. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the first match where it was kind of the start of your of your huge run was the win against Mancher Kara. That was a huge win because he's real good. And then you did that quintet event where you, I think you submitted everyone with heel hooks, and that was impressive. And then you uh, you got bronze at ADCC in the absolute division, submitting Gaudio, Kainan Dwarch, and uh, Muhammad Ali. So like three giant dudes, and you're going in there submitting them with heel hooks and heel hooks that are different from the conventional heel hooks that we've seen the DDS guys use more of the, uh, I guess you call it K guard and entering into backside positions, something that, uh, you know, we've seen Ryan Hall do recently and yeah, sort of, I, I guess if you had to say, pick one style that you identify with, if you 
could, what would you say your style is? Yeah, I'd say currently, well, I mean, actually, we'll get in, I suppose we can get into that, but definitely that K guard open. Like at the moment, I'm playing a kind of Delaheva K guard open guard uh, from from bottom. I'm looking to get into leg entanglements for 50 50. Um, and mm-hmm. at least for ADCC, that was, you know, with the sole focus of, you know, getting to 50 50 or, or one of the variants within that and um, and get the heel hook. Um, so that, that, that could be, I guess, a, a style. Prior to that, you know, if you had it went gone back two years, two years ago, you know, it's probably only a good one year in the lead up to ADCC that I changed into that particular style. Before that, I was playing much more single leg X and conventional inside positions. No, you're right. Oh, I suppose like prior to that, you know, a few years earlier than that, I was playing, you know, Del- I was doing De La Hiva, I was, I was Baron Bolo. If I had a competed, I was going to try and Baron Bolo my opponents. And okay. even half guard, I had like a long phase. I still like, I, mean, I still use, the thing is I still use all these positions and I, I feel like having kind of delved into them quite deeply and had them as my main style, I now can see these these links between the different styles. So I can use them, but I still have, you know, right now if I, could force someone somewhere, it's going to be into that K guard and, and try to enter the leagues. Mm-hmm. Livia, I would be remiss to ask, uh, in terms of your style, how would you describe it? I'm just wondering, I mean, I know that you've had a tremendous amount of success, uh, you being a multi-time world champ. Um, what kind of style would you say you have and how would you say that you've evolved it over the years? And I guess I'd also ask what led to that evolution? Was there any particular moment or insight that, you know, kind of helped you build a, the successful style that you have today? I think uh, I probably follow Lockie quite a lot and I guess like that's like many people in the gym they'll follow what the head coach is doing the most um probably the difference I've got is I still do uh gi um probably equal or not 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 equal amount of time but I do do gi a lot so I tend to use my spider guard grips uh a bit more to keep distance and I haven't really gone away from that I guess when I was a blue belt, that's when Lockie was going through his single X and X guard sort of phase. So that's where I started. And I was quite successful at blue belt level with that. It was kind of new school back in the day. And since then, I've developed, um, I've been trying to get very well-rounded. I really love pressure passing and, and wrestling as well. I think where it changed for me, similar time to Lockie, I've changed into my De La Hiva and K-Gut style before ADCC trials last Last year and then I think what's made me change my game quite a bit is my knee injury where I can't wrestle as much and I can't sort of do fast directional changes with your toriandos as much so that's where I prefer your sort of pressure game on top um, and yeah now we're sort of going through a bit of a bolo stage again. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you uh, what knee injury did you have because I just went through a meniscus issue on my right knee about a year ago and it is kind of ongoing, but I did get it scoped and it's 99% of the time it's awesome now. I'm curious, what knee injury did you have? Uh, I've torn my ACL. So yeah, yeah, like I've, t- I've torn it twice actually. Yeah, the last time was... Um, like complete tear? Yeah, yeah. So I've done it four months before the ADCC trials and um, slight meniscus tear, which doesn't bother me too much. But I've been able to rehab that without surgery. So I have mm. to be quite careful, but uh, I'm pretty functional. So does it buckle on you? 
Um, rarely. Uh, it doesn't really buckle. Sometimes it like it sort of gives way a tiny bit. But I find when I'm on top of my rehab and and doing my strength work and and everything that I'm meant to do, it does feel much better. So it's it's just maintenance really. And of course, I have to probably limit the amount of wrestling and and unexpected movements that I do as well. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to my coach about this a while ago and he, you know, he was saying that when everyone is young, they tend to have these, you know, looser, flowy agility and speed based games. But it seems like as everyone gets older, just whether it be due to, you know, just getting older or injuries that accumulate, there seems to be kind of like a a natural trend to move towards a more slow pressure based boulder style game where you just kind of, you know, you get, you don't give an inch at all and you just crush people with pressure. Um, and I found as a smaller guy, I actually never thought that particular style would work for me, but I've adopted it and found that actually it is not really as dependent on size or strength as I thought it was. It's, it's quite possible as a smaller person to generate a hellacious amount of pressure if you want to. You touched on something interesting there though, which is kind of events that trigger you to change your style. And I would say that, you know, as I've gotten older and learned more, there's kind of two different types of moments in my career that have led me to really change my style. One is when you have those breakthrough, aha, eureka, light bulb moments. You know, you discover a new concept or a new technique and it just becomes so pivotal to your game that it changes everything. Uh, But then the other situation is what you talked about, where sometimes just due to your body giving out due to an injury or due to as you get older or just because you get more risk averse as you get older, perhaps that can change your style, too. And it's not always a limitation. You know, sometimes, yes, maybe one door closes because you you have like a knee injury, but it can open up other strategies that you never really explored before. I'm just wondering from your perspective, from a philosophical perspective, what are kind of some of the big light bulb moments? Is there a way that you can coach your students to have those moments as well so they can explore these new ideas? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I think, I mean, I suppose it's whether it's a light bulb moments or just like picking the right mm. style for your body type or age and, and goals really, I think is, I think all those things and, and the level of development as well, I think are all really important. Yeah, I mean, I generally say kind of like what you said, like, you know, as you get older, you're, you're probably going to want a slower style, something something where you, something like a half guard or um, something where you can kind of trap someone and they can't run around and use their cardio as much. And you ha- you're focusing a lot more on like kind of control and climbing them. It's less of an open sort of game. Whereas I feel like younger, highly competitive, you know, if, you, if you're someone who's, who's wanting to, you know, do well at the world championships, flexible, they're much more likely to play an open guard game and a Toriando style game, something that uses a, a lot of energy. But it is, I mean, that's that's also probably another light bulb moment is I think going to, at least from what I see here in um, Australia, you know, like if you go if you go to the world championships and you see, at least I'm talking about a, a competitor here, but you know, sometimes you train at your gym, and everyone plays close guard, for example, you know, and that's the style at the gym. And then you go to the world championships, and you see, and you're you're a light featherweight, and you realize that everyone in your just about everyone in your division is doing the Berambolo and Delaheva and reverse Delaheva and lasso and all these kind of open guards and. You've got to start thinking, I think then, like if that's your goal to compete in in competitions like that, then there must be a reason why 
so many of these competitors are adopting that style and that's because that style is particularly effective for that division so i think things like that like going to compete and seeing what the current trends are and what the the best guys are doing and becoming familiar with that can be a big light bulb moment to to kind of change the, the direction of your of your game i know it has been for me you know like watching competitors you know i suppose like you know, seeing Huffa Mendes do the Berambolo, but back when he was a brown belt, I think I saw him doing that and I was like, that's an interesting movement. I don't even think it had a name then. And I started trying to do it at the gym, um, just seeing this, you know, brown belt starting to beat everyone with that move. And then obviously quite shortly afterwards, he was a black belt and doing it on the best guys in the world. I think I'll add to that from a physiotherapist perspective. Um, and I think that's based on my own injuries as well. Um, definitely like when I, see jiu-jitsu patients I do go through like a drilling plan in in terms of return to sport so say if you did have a traumatic knee injury I might go okay well the style of passing you're gonna do is um, you're over under passing so people are away from your legs it's slower and they're probably not familiar with that style so it it gives them a chance to work on something completely different Uh, from my own perspective I know when I did my knee I could only do 50-50 on my bad side um, or the you know bad side as in I wasn't very good at catching heel hooks from that side and that actually within those two months it became my good side so I think every time I've gotten injured I mean it would be much better if I didn't I did come away with something to add to my game that eventually became probably my A game. Yeah, I can definitely understand and relate to that. I mean, I I have had a similar moment where, I mean, I remember for me, and I, I guess this kind of actually touches on what both of you said. I remember when I was, um, I took a year off when my daughter was born to focus on kind of, you know, helping raise her and to just make sure I had more time at home. And that was when the really the leg lock explosion kind of hit the mainstream and started just crushing everyone in competition. Um, and I remember coming back to the gym and seeing all of these guys just like, suddenly I'm in there and, you know, I'm getting like tapped out by blue belts because I know nothing about this stuff, not to the level they do. And I realized like, okay, this, this thing, which when I left, it was just kind of like a fringe idea. Now it it is the idea and I've got to be willing to adopt to what the competitive scene has kind of brought onto the, you know, brought into the space. And, you know, I've had similar issues too, where uh, when I had a, a leg injury due to practicing toe holds with someone that changed my game in a lot of ways because it made me realize, okay, I really cannot afford to make this mistake of like leaving a leg dangling. I need to make sure that first and foremost, I'm always protecting my feet. And to your point, Livia, I mean, injuries, yeah, they suck, but sometimes they can be the wake up call you needed to really adjust your game to open your mind to new strategies and I mean this is actually something that I think a lot of athletes need to learn it it is very common of course to get depressed when you have an injury especially if that injury forces you to reevaluate your style but out of everyone that I've ever talked to uh, my brother included Oliver Taza you know a bunch of guys we've had on the show who have been through this they always use that opportunity rather than beating themselves up over it and getting depressed to try new things and to add new things to their game that weren't there before I guess on that note you know one thing that I would be curious to know is to what extent do you guys believe that body type has a dependency when it comes to your style now and the reason i say this is because 
when I was much younger and more naive, you know, I would I would really beat myself up if I just couldn't make a move work in a certain context. You know, I, I remember Eddie Bravo, for example, defending his system and saying, you know, uh, it's all about flexibility. Anyone can do our stuff. If you don't, if you can't do it, it's just because you need to do more flexibility training. And I've heard, you know, Ryan Hall say things like a little guy can always triangle a bigger guy if just you just got to get the technique right. And for a long time, I tried to just assume that everything would work for me. But now I, I try to pick my shots and I try to evaluate whether a move really fits my style. And I feel anyway, I have found that my style is very much related to my body type. I'm just wondering at the higher levels where you guys operate, do you find that? Do you find that you can just integrate anything into your style if you really, really want to? Or do you find that there are some moves that just naturally you gravitate towards? Like, I guess basically what I'm asking is, do you pick your style or does your style pick you? Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, I think body, I think body type is a big factor, but I also think it's a, you're playing with probabilities, not definitive yes or no. So like, I don't, for the most part, I don't think there's any one like guard, for example, or, or technique where I'd say like, oh, that'll only work if you're mm-hmm. tall. It will usually work if you're short, but the probability is lower, perhaps low enough that it's not worth really putting the time into uh, like, you know, you could get amazing at that move in terms of from a technical proficiency point of view, but it's still going to be low on the probability scale. You know, whereas if, if it was someone tall, they're going to have a much better time with with that. So, you know, I, I guess like have an example for that. Maybe some of the some of the ways people are passing spider guard or Delaheva guard these days where they're kind of like popping their hips back and throwing the leg past by like as they pop their hips back, like kind of like a Toriando from Delaheva, which I think if you're long and tall, you can like disengage your hips enough that you can clear the foot through that space. Like you can really stay attached enough with your upper body, but still retract your hips enough to clear the leg. And I think I can still do that, but the person I need to like really, it would need to be perfect. You know, I'm obviously shorter. So like I can do that particular type of pass, but my movement would need to be closer to perfect and their reaction would have to be worse compared to if I was taller where I could get away with it, even if, things weren't quite right. So, you know, is it worth it for me to add that to my game and have that as a main thing? Possibly if it fits in with a bunch of other things, but I might be better off with my my body type pursuing a different style of, of passing. Like I, I personally prefer to kind of close the gap and, and stay in tight. You know, I like to, I think that's a, a benefit of being shorter is if you close the gap on someone, there's less, that it's harder for them to make space to actually um, pummel back. There's less gaps. It's funny you mention that. I feel the same thing. You know, my as, as a shorter guy myself, I do find that the one advantage, in, actually there's a surprising number of advantages in jujitsu uh, to being shorter, but one of them is you can make yourself so compact, especially as you're you're walking into someone's guard that they just can't get much. I mean, I find, for example, that no one really ever gets like a, a dominant De La Hiva guard on me. And I think it's just because I've got these short, fat legs. <laughs> it's just very, very hard for someone to to bend my leg the way I don't want it to go. Whereas I find I'm much more susceptible to other types of control. Like I find spider guard works very well against me just because I don't have 
great grip strength. I don't have great upper body strength. So it sounds like what you're saying is it's a game of probabilities. I mean, you can take whatever you want, and but a lot of the time, some moves you're just going to have a little bit more more luck with. Um, Livia, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the matter. Yeah, I was just thinking about it more in a, like, of course, I think um, we have, you know, guys at the gym and, and ladies who might be a little bit older or like really stiff or might have some neck injuries. And uh, I don't think they're going to be able to force an invert in the sort of bolo game ever, you know, I just don't, well, they can, but I think it comes at a great risk of injury and so on, or the hip flexibility. And I, I was also thinking at it from a different point of view of where um, I, I'm a relatively small female and I really, kind of like you guys, I enjoy the close range passing and the pressure game and, and actually, you know, really making someone not be able to move. But when I do roll with the guys or anyone bigger, I can't, like, my pressure on Lockie is not really pressure. You know, he probably doesn't feel anything. Yeah, so you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you let me get there. <laughs> but like, I do tend to, like, I, I think I'm forced a little bit more to go around the legs and, and use my speed a bit more with anyone bigger. Whereas with the girls my size, I actually have enough uh, strength or, or like I'm able to exert enough pressure to slow them down and to actually pin the hips or whatever it is. I don't know if that's my technique as well, but I, I do think strength or size matters to an extent. Sounds like you're talking about body types, which is kind of the discussion that I thought we were going to get to. Again, I think everyone in this conversation is pretty short. Definitely, I think there is advantages with that. One one advantage I think is um, I think when applying wedges to you know leg entanglements, I think if you have shorter legs, uh, it tends. That's my fucking cats running around like idiots. Sorry <laughs> again, Matt. Every single freaking episode with the cats. If it's not my if it's, if it's not my kids screaming out for no reason. It's it's my cats. It's not just you. My cat has been standing behind the door just wailing and i've been trying to make very strategic use of the mute button to keep them out of this podcast <laughs> they're full-on fighting uh so anyways uh Lockie, i just wanted to ask you um what do you think about the and this is something that my professor rob who's quite tall he's like he's very tall and slender he's probably six two six three that's where I get a lot of my leg locks from. Um, he's, he said, you know, if you're shorter and you have thicker legs, you tend to be able to apply sometimes stronger break, uh, finishing mechanics and wedge mechanics and leg entanglements. What do you think of uh, that statement? Yeah, I think there's pros and cons of, I mean, I, I suppose like I, I like 50-50 and I think even just that it's harder for a taller person to retract their knee and mm -hmm. and high and like get their leg out of the the entanglement without exposing their heel whereas i can often tuck my foot in a lot tighter and you know it's it's harder for someone to pull my foot right up to their armpit or or close to their to their shoulder where they can actually start to attack so there's that side which which i think mm -hmm. favors the shorter person i do think you generally can create a tighter squeeze when you're when you're shorter, my experience has been more so of that anyway. Then there's advantages for the taller person as well. Though usually, usually, if the taller person stands up on top, it's very hard to maintain your hips close to their hips if you're short and they're tall and they're on top. You know, so often they have the advantage of being able to stand up and mm -hmm. and strip grips. It's very hard to hold single X on someone who's who's tall and good at clearing the grips from there so i think again that you're going within that then your style you're going to play in something like a leg entanglement will will be influenced by your your height i think yeah i've i found the exact same thing 
when playing like single leg X and other inside positions like X guard against certain people, it's like you go to extend to stretch them out and you kind of hit a wall because their legs are so much longer than you and you've kind of maxed out your, um, the length of your legs. So that's when you go and do things like taint stomps and things like that. I think, uh, modifying, modifying X guards and, you know, taint sweeps. And it, it, I don't know if you're aware of that term, but basically you're just stomping their genitals and it's a super <laughs> effective way for a smaller person to off balance from the it's bottom. It's the dick sweep. We call it the dick sweep. Yeah. <laughs> dick sweep. Yeah. Dick post. Matt, it's made its way all the way to Australia. I thought it was just a weird Vancouver thing that we've got like taint sweeps and dick posts and stuff, but I am glad to see that this new strategy is circling the globe. What you were saying there about now, you know, I think Cray rolling with Craig, he's obviously considerably taller than me and trying to play the traditional, like that kind of single leg X entanglement game on him. And I, I kind of just found that usually like, I think if a move's good, then it continues to work. And I just felt like with Craig, it was just getting worse and worse. He was figuring out how to counter that and, and shut that down. And just by trying to go there, I was getting put in worse positions because of that. So I kind of, that's when I probably one of the reasons I started to to look more towards fifty fifty as as a way of having a an entanglement that that's less prone to to something like a taller person standing up and yeah yeah that makes sense yeah I find for me that's that's the nightmare scenario with a bigger guy is if they stand up now that because their legs are so long it's the rest of their body is just it's out of my reach now you know I can't I can't even do anything because all I, all I can do is get at this one leg it's definitely an issue and I've found the same thing that all of you are talking about here which is that when when I'm going against someone with a significantly exotic body type just something much different from normal the stuff I would regularly do as part of my style, it just doesn't fly. And I've got to start getting creative. I've got to maybe adapt things. You know, Matt, you brought up a great example of like switching to like the dick post instead of just doing a standard single leg X. That was kind of a mental hurdle that I had to overcome earlier in my training because I was so focused on listening to professor and doing what professor says. And I thought, well, you know, I feel like I should have to adapt this, but well, professor said, do it this way. <laughs> and I'd, I'd almost feel guilty if I started trying to get creative or to change up. But I realize now that you have to be in tune with your own body and your own style. And sometimes that means you've got to kind of move out of position in ways that might work better for what you're personally trying to do versus what your instructor is trying to tell you, because they may come from a different perspective than you. I did want to comment on what we were talking about earlier about how generally when you're younger in your journey and if you're a competitor and you, you know, you're aggressive your style, at least for me, tended to be based a lot around movement. You know, I would allow my partner to move and I would try to beat them in terms of timing and sequencing and, and, uh, let them move, but still outmaneuver them. And now that I'm, uh, 32 and, you know, I've, I've had certain injuries and things like this. And, you know, every, everyone at the gym now, I've, I've been open for five years. So, so there are some guys with some actual, like really good skills now. Uh, I find like a, a much more, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a style with more longevity in my future has to do more with negating movement. So things like pressure passing and old school type immobilization rather than allowing movement, that's been a style that's been helping me a lot lately. So like ha tight half guard passing, for example, uh, is one of my favorite 
uh, positions. And I know that uh, Lachlan, you're, you have a body lock passing DVD. Do you not? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should, I should pick that up. I like the in close range passing. I, and I think especially, I think actually we haven't talked about Gi and Nogi, but I think if you're going to pass the guard Nogi, like getting in close through the half guard is definitely the most reliable mm-hmm. way to do that. Whereas around the legs and so on is, is a bit more, bit more tricky to do i think especially against a flexible guard player oh, i wanted to go back to just because oh, we were talking about kind of adapting to make what works for you and i think that's a it's a good one and it's also really tricky because i don't like i think I, you're all coaching but now um, so you'd, you'd get the same thing but we, we also i think it is important that the style you choose is as as someone's developing and coming through, the style you choose, I think, should be based off an existing uh, high level competitor or system. That's that, that 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 a bunch of high level. Like I think the more prevalent it is in in high level competition, the more likely it should be that someone should play it. If that makes sense. <laughs> that's a really really good point and something that I think probably most people don't put a lot of thought into, you know, like I was saying earlier, I think most people, they, their style isn't something they actively think about cultivating. It's just as they train, they kind of collect a little tactics and strategies here and there. And over the years, it cobbles it together. And probably their instructor has a, an outsized impact on what their style winds up looking like. But you've got a good point, which is that you should kind of have like a style mentor, I guess, for lack of a better term, right? There should be someone that you can see at a high level who's doing the kind of stuff that you want to do and that you then start to pattern yourself after. And I think that's something that consciously most people probably don't do, but I think based on what you're saying here, it would probably be good if more people did. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I think about the amount of things I, sometimes we're like, oh, this, you know, this seems like a good move and I'll think it up, you know, (laughs) or I'll like think of like a a variation on something I'm doing and I'm like, this is, this looks good. I haven't seen it in high level yet, but I'll, I'll try it out and often it'll work well on blue belts, maybe purple, maybe brown, maybe even some black belts, but then I'll roll with, you know, a good competitive black belt and I'm like, oh, there's a glaring hole in this, you know, like, and then I try to work it out. I'm like, actually, against, you know, when you bring it right up to that higher level, it stops working, you know, and I don't think, I usually will abandon the move. If I, if I, I'll try to work around it and see if I can figure something out, but if it continues to be unsuccessful against the best guys, then I'll tend to abandon it because, Really, I don't want something. I I don't want to do a move that if people figure out how to stop it, then it doesn't work. You know, I want to I want it to work right through to the highest level. So so by choosing, I think early on or not early to mid, even maybe even up till black belt, like kind of trying to emulate someone else's game or potentially emulate and mix some different people's games together is fine. And then at some point you start, I think it starts being a good idea to branch out a bit and start finding things that suit you a bit more but often i think it's better at first to to stick to what's proven as opposed to going off on a tangent too early on i think what yeah. do you think yeah yeah i was just gonna say usually i'm the experiment experimental bunny at at night lock you will be like oh can i just try something and it everything works and then he'll try it on the guys at the gym it's like oh yeah <laughs> not so much yeah most i i guess i guess what i'm saying is 
99% of the ideas I have don't work. That's that's like, as in they might work, but they, they don't work hold up. They work with me. They don't, they don't hold up against like uh, the level of opponent that I want it to work on. So, uh, yeah. yeah, but so yeah, generally the ideas I have are bad and it's much better to actually look at high-level competition and go, hey, that's interesting what they're doing. I'm going yeah. to, to take that. I think definitely, like when we're talking about students, I think uh, we, we definitely encourage our students to watch jiu-jitsu and, and try to get the ideas from many different sources. But we do have some students who like to like look at the most obscure like weird YouTube instructionals with, you know, people that have never competed or whatever it is. <laughs> so, yeah, we do try to encourage to actually look at like tested competitors, uh, you know, moves that work under pressure. And I think it's it's all – it's really – I think a key word there is how prevalent it is because it's not just that you've seen mm. it at a high level. It's, it's how prevalent it is. It's just to how like, you know, like – uh, I always use the knee cut, the knee cut pass or cross knee through pass, whatever you want to call it, as an example. Like you see that in all the time, you know. So that's like if you don't have that in your game, you've got a glaring hole in your jiu-jitsu. If you don't know how what a cross knee through pass is and and how to do that, whereas you might find some competitor who uses like, I mean, we can use we can say we can say the crucifix as a, as an example. Like it can work. You can make the crucifix work. There's probably like one or two competitors I can think of that actively at the, at the world level that actively like look for the crucifix to finish. But you can definitely, you could ignore that and still be very good at jujitsu. You don't need the crucifix in your game to be, mm-hmm. to be good at jujitsu. Whereas something like the, the knee through, I really feel like is, is important. And all you have to do is look at how prevalent it is. You see knee cuts happen all the time. You see crucifix. And crucifix finishes happen occasionally because I think some people might get that message of of watch a high level competitor and then they'll choose someone who does something quite obscure and then mm. and then just follow with that. Yeah, and and the funny thing too, of course, is that you know especially as you are in more of the junior side, you're attracted to novelty, and so those obscure, fancy, weird things they're they're exotic and they're fun and they have kind of like an undue influence on white belts. I think, <laughs> you know, people are attracted to shiny objects. And the problem is sometimes it is just the tried and true boring stuff that actually works best. And, you know, this is something that Matt and I have talked quite extensively about, which is that you, when you're building a strategy, yes, sometimes those, those fancy moves, basically the, the novel moves, the unorthodox stuff, we look at them kind of like tricks, right? I mean, and they can work. Usually, if you're good enough at it, a trick will work the first time, but it probably won't work the second time. And that's not to say you can never use a trick to try to throw off your opponent or an unorthodox move, but you're going to be, odds are, way more successful if you stick to the things that are proven bread and butter over time at the highest levels, the things that aren't fads, the things that even when the best are fighting the best, you can see that they still work effectively. Yeah, I, I can remember when uh, when I was, I think, purple belt, I learned how to do a barambolo. And then I started watching the Mendez bros, as you guys were talking about Mendez bros earlier. And uh, I think they're they're pretty inspiring, um, just the way that they innovate and they move and all this, uh, you know, their style. And the Meow brothers as well, watching crab rides and seeing how they're going upside down rather than passing the guard conventionally. And it's funny because then they, after they did that for a number of years, they started passing the guard conventionally on top and using pressure passes. And it's funny because my game has also 
I wouldn't say I don't do bolos anymore. Um, I do, uh, I still do them, but I don't look to do them anymore. In fact, if I could, uh, you know, I, I'm more opportunistic with them. And I know you guys mentioned how the lighter weight classes in competition are more prone to do moves like that. Whereas if you go lightweight and up, when I was in Portland at the beginning of the year doing IBJJF, they were, I saw a lot of jump closed guard and most of the, most of the game that I saw from the bottom was closed guard. And most of the game I saw from the top was stack passing. So it was like super traditional jujitsu. And it's funny how things go full circle like that. And, um, you know, these, these things move in, in cycles and, uh, and, and in phases and it all comes back to the basics I find. And that's really what I'm, I'm trying to focus on because all those years of doing barambolos and crab rides and things like that, I've realized like, Oh, I'm, I, I got some big holes in my game. I could, I could spend a lot more time in the closed guard. I could spend a lot more time trying to do pressure passes and things like that. Yeah. I think it's, I think you look at the, the guys who do, fancy stuff and you're right they all eventually come back into more like i think it's just like a regression towards the mean almost you know it's like usually if someone's got some fancy move that works for them it starts to stop working and then what will work for them you know is but going back into something more uh, tried and true i guess yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah And, and then of course watching things uh, in competition, that's another great inspiration for a lot of different styles. Like I didn't start using K guard until I saw you use it at ADCC and now I've been using it a ton and I'm, I'm finding, Hey, like, I think using this way to enter into the back, uh, into the backside positions, I, for me, it's a lot stronger of a finishing position than say just standard Ashigurami. Yeah. I, I don't really personally now, I don't really look for the leg locks from, yeah, from something like a single X or, or Ashigura, like like a against a standing opponent, unless I can chop them down through K guard. If I, if I get something like single X, I'm really trying to sweep or get them down to their butt before I start thinking about some sort of leg entanglement entry. Sorry, leg lock entry. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something interesting, Lachlan, earlier. When you evolve your style by discarding things that you've just outgrown or they don't work anymore. And, you know, as they say, uh, what got you here won't get you there, right? And I think a mistake that a lot of people make is they will cling on to strategies that worked for them when they were lower down in the belt ranks. But once they face stiff enough competition, the things that they've been using for years, there's got to be a moment where you realize, okay, maybe this isn't the right thing to do anymore. I, it got me where I need to go, but I'm now seeing that against this next level of competition, I just can't break through the ceiling if I'm still using this game. And interestingly, in the in the business world, they have a concept for this. It's called systematic abandonment. And the idea is that, you know, as your company grows, once you get to the next level, the things that you were doing at the earlier levels will actively hold you back because they're no longer appropriate. So you have to make a conscious effort to kind of flush the toilet and get rid of a lot of the the more uh, junior techniques that you were using so that you can focus on the things that are required of someone who's up at the next level. I'd just be curious to know from your perspective, is there a way to tell when that time has come? Like, is there a moment where you're kind of evaluating your game and you realize, you know, man, I was using this tactic. I've been using it all the way since white belt, but it's just not there anymore. It's just not happening. Like, is there a moment where you realize this particular move has got to go? Yeah. um, That's a really good point, actually. And something I wanted to discuss when I thought about this topic was when you should change your, should you be changing your style as you go, as opposed to 
sticking to the same thing. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I think if it's not working, right? Like I think anyway, the, the way I think is if, if I'm rolling with someone, I'm trying to do a technique or, or use, use a particular system and it just keeps getting blocked and I'm trying everything I can and I'm thinking about it and problem solving, but in the end of the day, it's just not working. That's when I think it should. Mm. Like if you're not gaining on your training partners, I think it's not it's not good. You know, like if you've got someone that maybe they beat you, you know, roughly 70% of the time and you beat them 30% of the time and, you know, you're doing your style and then you're noticing that in – in three months, three months later, they're beating you 80 and you're only getting 20, then that's a sign something needs to change. You need to come at it from a different angle. And that actually, so to me, that would be the, like, you know, if it's not working, you know, I think it should, if you're doing it well enough, it should be able to work on anyone. But don't, don't set you, you know, if you're a white belt, okay, you're not going to beat the black belt, you know, for a very long time. So keep it, keep it to someone who you're, you know, somewhat competitive with at first just to kind of um, get a more realistic sense of how you're progressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Livia, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this because I'm presuming, uh, I didn't realize you were a physiotherapist, but I'm presuming that as you have that job that a lot of jujitsu athletes come to you and you probably have to, to some extent, coach them through the process of changing their game based on the injuries they've received, which can actually be a, a valuable experience that can actually help you more than you expected. I'm just wondering what your perspective is on this whole discussion about systematically abandoning techniques that you've used before. Yeah, I think an injury is nearly like an easy way to just do it. <laughs> Cause I think people hold like attachments to their style or their techniques quite a lot. Sometimes with like a injury can be a blessing in disguise where it's like, okay, well you're banned from doing whatever it is, closed guard. So you have to open up and it's out of your comfort zone, but you have an excuse, uh, you know, to lose, I guess. I think a lot of people are a bit scared to try uh, because they do lose a bit more when they learn a new thing. Yeah. So I think with physio, it's, it's nearly easy. I think the hard bit is, um, I actually getting people to pay attention to what style they are playing, especially, um, and that's not everyone. Uh, I guess at our gym, we do try to have a really big technique focus, but you do have like white blue belts that come and I ask, what's your A game or what's your style? And they have no idea. They just say, oh, I like passing, you know, and I go like, passing how? (laughs) I mean, I like passing too. (laughs) A a lot of people do that. Or like they'll say, I like closed guard or open guard. I'm like, what does open guard mean? Like what? Like, because there's a difference if you play a De La Hiva or spider guard on your knee, you know, like, is that safe or is it? And they just don't really know exactly what it is they're trying to do. So I think like defining what you're actually playing and then trying to change that is step one. But yeah, I think what I was going to also add from like the slightly previous discussion is a lot of the times like everyone at the gym, you know, if I'm learning something new, it will work for say a month and then my training partners try like start to figure it out because there's patterns and reactions. They research how to beat that technique and, and everyone improves. So sometimes it stops working, but then I go to a competition and it actually does work. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a good or bad yeah. thing. And the other thing that happens is like, you know, I'll roll with the girls and they'll, I can't get them with the, you know, say it's bolo, I'm trying to do it and do it and do it. And they give me a particular reaction that stops the bolo, but it gives me like the good old half guard sweep or I don't know, hip bump from close guard, something that's, you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty basic. So I do go back to things sometimes and then 
as a result, it gives me a reaction I want for the newer thing I'm working on again. But yeah, I don't know if that's a technique, like if that's a technique thing. I was talking to like Louisa Monteiro and she was saying um, her, her sort of signature sweep hardly ever works in the gym, but then in the comp at World Championships, she gets it on everyone because they're not used to it. So you touched on two things actually that I think are tremendously important there. Um, the first one is is the way that I've heard it described is investing in loss where, you know, when you're trying something new, your your ego kind of doesn't like that because you're going to suck at it. <laughs> and if you're bringing, you know, new firepower into the gym, you're trying to integrate new techniques, odds are you're going to look like an idiot the first few times you try to use them. So there's kind of this natural psychological gravitation back to the things that you're good at because, well, you know, you all of us have ego to some extent and we want to look good on the mats and it takes a long time to kind of train your brain out of that and to say, okay, for this week, I'm going to work on this technique that I know I'm going to suck at, <laughs> but once I get good enough at it, you know, once I put my ego on the shelf and I let myself look bad in front of my students and my training partners, it opens up that opportunity there for me to improve and to bring that technique into my A game over time. Another thing that you mentioned, which I think is a great point, is your training partners, they're going to wise up to what you're doing. And you have an impact on your training partners just like they have on you, right? I mean, if I've seen this all the time where, you know, my gym has a certain particular style. And when I drop by at Matt's gym, they do things totally different. So there are, you know, moves that at my gym I love to use. And even if I'm good at them, all of my training partners, they know what I'm going to do. So they they expect it. And because they expect it, it makes it harder. Whereas when I go and train with people who don't normally train with me, they don't understand what I'm going to do. Or even if they know my game, they haven't experienced it from me firsthand. So yeah, sometimes these moves, they feel like they don't work because you're used to training with people who are building up like a, basically they're getting inoculated against your techniques. But then when you go and you take those on the road show, surprisingly, sometimes those can work just because people don't understand that, oh man, that, you know, Steve's going to do this. And I've, Steve has already done this to me a hundred times. So I know how to defend it. For them, even if they studied competition footage on you, it's the first time maybe that they've actually felt that resistance. So that's a really, really good point. <laughs> Sometimes maybe the technique isn't as bad as you thought it was. Yeah, I think talking about that, you know, the importance of, well, knowing that you're going to suck at it, I feel like a really important thing there is knowing that the thing you're working on does work. Yeah, that, that's why I, I really recommend basing it off, off high-level competitor yes. or, or something. Just so, like, you know, if I see Leandro Lowe is doing something and at work, I see him do it like five times in a row and I go to the gym and I'm like, I, I can't do this move. It's bullshit. That's that's not true. Like, I just suck at the move. You know, that, that's that's me not having enough nuance to actually understand where I'm going wrong with the move and, and you know, perhaps if I keep persisting, I can make it work because I see that it does work. But if it's something I saw on a random YouTube video or something that I created myself, there's a fair chance it does have, a you know, a ceiling where it just stops working. <laughs> um, so, knowing the ceiling is high by watching someone high level, you know, doing it repeatedly then should give you the confidence that it's you're not doing it right. 
yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, or you can keep developing, you know, keep work, keep pushing through, keep developing it if you feel like it's something that you want to add to your game. I think also like going back to the ego thing, um, specific training or like posi- positional sparring is a really good way to fix that because um, it kind of takes away the focus of winning and losing a role. You're just kind of like losing a thing in a position and then you go get to go back and fix it. So I think that definitely seems to get people out of that sort of really competitive or must win at all cost and, and hold and not open up to try something new. We're also talking about when you're trying to change your style, like I think an important thing to think about is what like what should you work on? How far removed from should it be from your style that you're mm-hmm. playing now? And I think it probably takes a a good coach to guide probably your average jiu-jitsu person through it. Us as black belts, we can kind of work this out ourselves pretty easily. But for, you know, for a blue belt, for example, let's say a blue belt plays half guard or plays butterfly guard and they want to play Delaheva. Butterfly and Delaheva don't really mix well together in and of themselves. You need some intermediary there to, or maybe two intermediary things to, to, to eventually link the, those two particular types of guards, you know. So, you, I think you want to build off your existing game and just shift it a little bit. So, if you're playing butterfly, butterfly is not too hard to go to half guard, you know. And then half guard could go to reverse Delaheva. Reverse Delaheva could eventually bring you into to Delaheva. But I think doing something very adjacent to what you're working it'll feel a lot more familiar what options you have and you can also find out where your current game fits in with the thing that you're you know if you're working butterfly and half butterfly for example you'll you'll start to notice oh okay there's you know when i when they do this i can go back to my butterfly game but if they do that i can go to my half butterfly and then that can become a half guard and then you know you you can build it like that so i think that's a it's important that people are, are working adjacent areas you know that's something that not enough people talk about and Matt and I have talked about this too in the process of helping your students kind of build their game plan, which is that a lot of students, if you ask them, what is your game plan? They'll say something like, oh, you know, I I like to do this pass. And then when I do that pass, I like to do this submission and so on and so on. And then you can start asking probing questions like, okay, well, that's cool. But how do you get on top? And they'll just kind of go, duh, you know, like, well, I, I don't, I'm missing that part of my game plan. And sometimes people, they have, you know, one or two different techniques that they're really, really good at, but they don't have the method to string them together into a sequence and into a funnel. And this is something that I found to be tremendously helpful as I kind of reevaluated what I do that, that works. Um, I don't like to have just individual positions or individual techniques that I like to use. I try to find a way to connect them so that they'll all ultimately, no matter what happens, I have a way to get to where I want to go. Like, I mean, you know, if you like, for example, single leg X guard and you like playing that position, but you don't have a good way to actually transition out of that into a more dominant position later, like there's a missing hole in your game. And I think a good coach can really help their students by kind of helping them connect the dots. Like what, what is the journey here from all of these positions that you're currently good at and how can you funnel those to where you ultimately want to go? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I can't remember, I think it was like my, the, the original head coach we had, John Will, used to, um, he used to say that it's like you've got a big jigsaw puzzle and the easiest pieces to add on are the ones next to the, like you're starting to fill out, you know, a jigsaw of half guard. 
the easiest piece to add on is one next to it. You can see it, you see where it fits, and you put it in, and you you're going to build the jigsaw a lot quicker. If your if your eventual aim is to have a broad, you know, filled out jigsaw puzzle, you don't start putting one in the middle of an unknown spot. It's very hard to to build on that. But building on what you've got existing and branching out, eventually covering the whole puzzle, is is probably the best way to do it. I wanted to ask you, uh, Lachlan, because on Ryan Hall's 50-50 DVD, which extensively covers the the backside 50-50 position and some of the concepts there, I, I would say your your instructional is probably, uh, it's got more content. Ryan Hall's instructional is not super long, but he talks about the application of those positions in an MMA situation. And I'm just wondering, personally, I don't do this, but I'm wondering, do you consider your opponent punching you in the face when you're in these positions? Or is it pretty much, is your your thought process when you're developing, you know, these techniques, are you, is it pretty much sport jiu-jitsu oriented? Yeah, for me, it's just sport jiu-jitsu. I mean, if I was coaching an MMA fighter, I would probably <laughs> change my approach to a, to a certain degree or or if I was training for MMA myself but yeah I'm, I'm trying to compete at ADCC so I think any if, if I'm going to not do a move because I could get punched but I'm trying to win ADCC I feel like that's two conflicting um, areas of interest so yeah my, mine's pretty much mm-hmm. just sport I mean I, I, I to be honest I haven't really trained enough MMA to have an opinion on you know which parts of the 50-50 game would or wouldn't wouldn't be applicable to to MMA. I'm sure Ryan Hall does though. <laughs> he's a, he's obviously mm. training that a lot, so he would have right. uh, some really good insight into that. Mm-hmm. Do you do other martial arts at all? No, wrestling. But obviously, like wrestling, yeah. The one thing that I've always found fascinating is how sometimes adjacent martial arts can actually influence your jujitsu style in weird ways. I mean, Matt and I, we we've got a, a guy here in Vancouver who has a traditional karate background and he's he's actually an outstanding jujitsu black belt but it's weird rolling with him because he still he still integrates in these like kind of like flowy karate movements that i've never seen anyone else do i wouldn't even advise that other people do them but it's just part of his style and he's able to make it work. I know a lot of other people who are able to just do weird kind of highlight reel stuff because they just come in with a, a background and from like folk wrestling or whatever. And it is interesting how sometimes your background or your adjacent training methods, it can actually impact your jujitsu style and what you appear to be comfortable with. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely training for me, training wrestling, probably more from an aggression point of view, you know, like when you're, I found with with wrestling, if I didn't, if I'm not like pushing the pace, you know, to to at least over 70, 80%, then my moves just don't work. (laughs) You know, like I have to actually like really commit. Whereas jujitsu, I feel like you can kind of, it's very like you take a, you take an inch and you just hold it. Yeah. You take another inch and you hold it and you're kind of working that way. And a takedown doesn't work that way. You don't like, you don't get an underhook and then sit there for, you know, a, a few minutes until, they open up the next gap for you to take. You really have to get your underhook and force a gap. You know, you're now just like driving and mm. trying to create some sort of opening yourself quite quickly to, to start, you know, moving on to the single leg and then trying to finish that. Like it's all almost everything you do right to the mat is almost just like a boom, 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 boom. I think that mentality is actually good if you're competing in jiu-jitsu to like to try to be fast at, you know, like you get your opening and you take it as quick as you can and you're quite aggressive at it. When you're competing, it that's good. I think when you're just training for 
for skill development, it actually is somewhat counterproductive. I think for skill development, you want things slowed down a bit so you can really pay attention mm. to what's to what's happening. So I think I, also though, wrestling has made me think of scrambles as technique. Like it used to be just like, just scramble and be crazy and try to get, you know, in a better position. But I think the more you do it and the more um, you do it at the real speed, you actually find technique in that as well. Yeah, yeah. I think in jujitsu, scramble is code for, I don't know what the hell is happening right now. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. But Yeah, yeah. but I think even in jujitsu, like at the high levels there, it's really two people like – with a clear direction True. they want to go, but it's like it could go, you know, it's kind of yeah. at that point where anything It's a very feel type yeah. thing, but you still have to train it, what I'm saying, you know. Like yeah. If you never feel it, it's just very energy consuming and we're getting old yeah. <laughs> and, and injury prone. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting how that has impacted my game. I mean, Liv, as someone who has also had a, a few pretty bad injuries, I wonder, do you find that you adapt your game for the sake, not necessarily of performance, but for the sake of longevity. Uh, Because I have found as I, you know, as I get older, I've had to start making this compromise where I'm not just doing stuff now because it works, but I'm doing stuff because I believe over the long term it will keep me safer, which is kind of an interesting discussion in an internal monologue you have to have with yourself. Because I, the reality is, I mean, I know that there's a lot of stuff that at the high levels is going to work, but I find that now my goal more than anything is just, hey, I just want to be able to show up tomorrow just like I did today. I just don't want to die here. Yeah. I I think I should be doing that a lot more than I am. I'm a little bit of a crazy one. Um, I, I think now definitely I'm starting, like especially during this corona time, to be honest, where uh, I was definitely overtraining in the past and just knowing that, you know, uh, my jiu-jitsu hasn't gone <laughs> to, to absolute zero. And I've probably improved just not training as hard and not at the same intensity and just focusing on skill a bit more. I think that's uh, – I, I think definitely I'm going to change the way I roll. I think the problem with me though is I actually do love rolling hard and I find it really fun. So I, I, I like flow rolling as well and I like being all flowy and practicing my transitions, but I actually find it extremely fun to just like roll hard from time to time. I just have to be very conscious of how often I do it. And I'm quite well aware that not many – especially girls, like they don't love rolling at that pace all the time. Whereas it's not so much like the competitive thing in me. I just actually really enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, I do like rolling hard. I mean, with the caveat that I am old and lazy, but for the two minutes that I can do it is definitely fun. (laughs) Hey, I I do have a question for you though, Olivia. Um, One of our listeners specifically wanted to ask about this because you're right that as as a woman, you have a very different training experience than, for example, I would have. And uh, we have actually a surprisingly high amount of female listeners, and a lot of them have asked this question, and they've, they've wanted to know, when you're in there rolling with men, how does that impact your style? Some of the feedback that I've heard from women who roll is that they have trouble getting quality rolls out of men because men kind of have two switches, it seems, when it comes to rolling with women. First, they're afraid to do anything at all. And then the woman eventually starts winning and then they freak out. So so you're not getting like a consistent resistance curve from a, an opponent. And I, I've had a lot of women write in and say that they find that to be a kind of a frustrating training experience. I'm just wondering... Is there anything that you do style-wise to get the most out of those roles with male partners versus with women? Yeah, it, it is really hard. Um, you, and you're right. I, there's definitely some people that uh, – I think the 
No, they're mainly men, I think. But yeah, there's the I'm going to just lie there and do nothing and, and then compliment you on your pressure and uh, while they're doing absolutely nothing. And the other ones that are – I think especially from – when I've been a higher belt, so brand black, there's definitely people that are actually fighting me. I think the trick is to find the the guys that are not fighting you. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm looking for a role. If it's a fight, I'm never going to win against a man or against a trained man, I, I should say, uh, that's heavier or stronger than me. So I, I definitely give guys feedback now and it's mi- might be a little bit easier as a higher belt and a coach as well. And I think I do it a lot nicer these days. I used to get really annoyed and really frustrated and be, you know, rolling my eyes or whatever it was. And and now I prefer that guys start off easier on me and then I can say, hey, you can go a bit harder. Or if you put pressure, you're welcome to put pressure on me, but it has to be slow so I can tap. Or if you're using speed, like because a lot of guys think I'm rolling with a girl, I'm going to go really fast. But your fast must be might still be different to mine just because like of the explosiveness and the speed is still going to be – I guess, faster than most women. So it's really trying to match the pace and the skill. I think where I have a lot of fun, like when we're doing nogi seminars, my favorite roles are the guys that are like, will actually go into 50-50 and play the game with me, not just try to do anything like hold my ankles or hold my wrists so hard that I can't move so they don't get heel hooked, you know? Like it's it just like I'm not actually competing with men. And I think that that's probably like – some girls have this impression that they should be beating men. And of course that's possible, but it's okay for men to go easy on us. I am very thankful of that (laughs) because I'm not looking to fight them. But yeah, the other thing is I actually really hardly train with men these days. Uh, Maybe apart from, you know, like if there's no girls at training, but it took us a little while, but we've built it up so that we have in an usual day, we'll have between 10 and 25 women on the mat and uh, the mainly colored belts as well. So I'm, I have the luxury of not, uh, not that I don't like training with guys. Definitely some of the guys are my favorite training partners, but it, my body just doesn't hurt as much. And it's also more realistic. So often the girls that just roll with guys will then roll with higher level women and they freak out because nothing works because we actually are, you know, doing full resistance. We're not the girls are not letting each other do stuff unless there's a big skill difference. Yeah, so I think to summarize it, like uh, don't be afraid to tell the guys nicely how or like if they're going too hard or too easy um, or like ask them to like follow your pace um, and I don't know, build up the girls at the gym. <laughs> like it, it's really cool to have a competitive female team to train with and and as a higher belt, I guess that was kind of up to me at the start and now, now it's just taken uh, on its own. And don't be afraid to stop someone if they're going too hard as well. I used to stress about that, but I just say, hey, like I'm not going to keep doing this because my body hurts. I would say that's good advice for men too, right? Like there is absolutely zero benefit in rolling with someone who is trying to fight you and not to actually train with you, right? And, uh, you know, you don't see this, I find, so often with more experienced belts, but with the new people, they they don't yet have that conditioned fight-or-flight response to jiu-jitsu where they can attack it calmly. And, I, you know, I have this too, where if I'm a black belt and I, I'll go in there and I'll see some white belt who is clearly trying to legitimately fight people, 
like, I'm just not going to have a part of it if that's the way it is. I mean, I don't feel like I have some ego or pride to that I need to that I need to protect. I don't feel like I need to be the gym enforcer and go beat them up. I think that's a, a very toxic mindset. At the end of the day, I think that it's the best thing to do in that situation is to tell the person like, look, I'm not comfortable rolling with you right now. You got to settle down a little bit. It's fine. We all have been through this situation where we were, you know, we were younger and we were less experienced and we got overly excited. But if you want to roll with people, you got to be safe and you got to slow it down a bit. I think it's totally fine to have that conversation. I think like, honestly, there's of course the odd one or two that have, you know, anger problems or something, but most people just don't know and they don't realize that they're the crazy one or. Yeah, it's ignorance. Yeah, they just have no idea. and, And it's like kind of up to us to teach them a bit, I think. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I mean, Liv, you you kind of already answered this question, but I just wanted to ask Lachlan, you know, being a gym owner, uh, I can kind of relate to having a business and then, you know, your name has a lot of notoriety around it being, you know, quite accomplished. People come train with both of you. And I'm sure when they come to your gym, they expect to roll with you. But, how, you know, I'm sure you probably got some some pretty big guys down there. Uh, it's, it's a constant thing that I have trying to be also a competitor and trying to have longevity in the sport. And when people come to my gym, they want to roll with me, obviously. So it's like, how do you sort of balance that dichotomy? Because you're, there is a risk of getting injured yet you still, you know, you're providing a service. You want people to feel what it's like to roll with you. But you know, when, when like a 250 pound guy walks in, and he's brand new. It's like, oh my god! What like, like how do you, do you feel obligated to roll with that guy and sort of calm him down, or will you feed him to like, maybe you have some <laughs> bigger students? I don't always roll with them. Um, it depends on on what's kind of which stage I am in competition preparation. To be honest, like usually, usually I do my training in the mornings, which is like our pro training session, and and I I usually train to the point where I'm like, okay, if I do more than this, I'm going to be pushing it towards like potentially getting injured and so on so i i tend not to roll as much at night mm-hmm. i tend to more teach and, and observe and, and so i'd probably you know more be watching and you know make i try to like if it was someone new i'd try to and, and that looked scary i'd try to pair them up with someone who i think is going to be able to deal with them and make sure that they're rolling properly and i can obviously observe and come over and tell them to slow down if they're, if they're going crazy but i, I tend not to do, unless it's like um, someone who's come to the pro training session. I don't get to roll with them. Well, I don't get to roll with anyone at the moment because mm-hmm. of lockdown. But um, <laughs> yeah, like if I'm preparing for a competition, I'm kind of in that in that zone where it's it's a little bit selfish. But I'm trying to get all the roles I need exactly for me. Whereas mm-hmm. out of competition season, I, that, then I'd be much more likely to to roll with someone who's come in like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense, right? It simply just isn't worth taking the risk if you're ramping up to a major comp, right? I mean, even putting aside the possibility of injury, what if the guy, you know, freaks out and punches you? Or what if he gouges your eye? Or what if he just, what if it's something less innocuous? What if he just gives you the flu, right? Like there's there's a lot of reasons why it's not in your best interests to sacrifice yourself to, to prove something to a white belt when you're running up to a major competition. Yeah, yeah, I think we've got so many like higher belts on the mat now as well that they probably yeah. no matter who it is they'll probably get a good role. Yeah. I think a trick that I do if it's like say it's a smaller purple belt guy or maybe a new uh, higher belt female that's a bit heavier than me, and I try to suss out if they're safe. So I'll get some of my favorite guys to roll with them first and tell me if the movement is safe or not, or and they might say avoid or go ahead. <laughs> so, so I've got my little people that <laughs> that will suss out how the person rolls. 
So you're, you're like a, like a villain in a movie where it's like you send your minions out there to be the first wave. Pretty much. <laughs> Tell me how they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that That is one of the best things about being a, a gym owner is because once you start to build up your clientele, you know, you've you've got those people who are kind of the informal enforcers, I suppose. We've got this huge black belt at our gym who is just unbelievably strong and yeah if someone is being naughty then they go in for a round with him <laughs> that's amazing hey i i had a quick question about the recent rule changes in the ibjjf you know a few days ago we found out 2021 that ibjjf is going to allow reaping and heel hooks at brown and black belt i was actually a little bit disappointed that they're not allowing it in the gi i thought i thought they were going to allow it in the gi i was like no fucking way that is awesome then i found out it's just no gi but i was wondering you know that that really does change a lot because the sport is it's not a different sport but it's the application of the sport changes drastically once you allow heel hooks and reaps and also athletes who maybe would not even touch the podium at the tournaments now have a a fighter's chance and possibly you know catching someone in a heel hook and there is a huge difference in knowledge at the highest level sometimes some of the best guys have limited knowledge in heel hooks so i'm wondering do you think that next year when they implement this rule for no gi competition are we going to see different people on the podium altogether will there be like a changing of the guard will it just be mostly the same people end up at the top of the podium regardless and then you'll see a few other guys maybe sneak on that can catch people in heel hooks how do you think it'll affect the landscape of the podium in the IBJJF moving forward yeah interesting question I hope it makes the nogi world a bit more prestigious because at the moment you're not or like you're usually getting like let's say that let's say to me like the the adcc field is usually like the top let's say the top 16 or you know obviously there's some people from other countries and so on sometimes but like roughly we could say that's the the best guys and often for nogi worlds you'll get like maybe three or four of the 16 that were in adcc actually entering the the nogi world so i feel like whereas if it was um if it was gi world you'd, you'd expect like all of the the field there you know like i think you know if, if we can take like lucas lepre and jt torres from from my division who i don't think have done nogi worlds for a long time so i'm interested to see whether now that they're adding heel hooks in whether it becomes a more prestigious title to win and draws in more talent that way i mean i still think someone like a jt torres i mean he's he would still have to be the favorite i'm just thinking about my division here but you know, if he was to do Nogi Wills, he would probably still have to be the mm. favorite in, in a rule set like that. Although it is interesting now that because ADCC favors wrestling and that's actually often how JT Torres was, was kind of finishing his opponents. Now it's going to come down to mm-hmm. someone could pull guard on him. He's obviously got very good passing mm-hmm. as well, but that might change it a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there'll definitely be people who, especially, you know, guys like Oliver Tarza and a lot of the leg lockers who are now will have a considerably higher advantage or chance of, of meddling or winning than than they might have before that. Although I think each of the guys now who are high level with leg locks are already kind of like what you said, like someone who who gets good at one field starts getting good at the basics as well. And you know, like guys like Tarza and so on as well, of course, are working like their passing and back takes and every other part of their game as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, I echo Matt's sentiment that I was very disappointed. 
to find out that this new rule change did not apply to the gi. Like, I was so excited to see what crazy heel hook lapel shenanigans Keenan was going to come up with, but I guess we'll have to wait a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if the gi, it would definitely make it exciting in terms of lapels and so on, but then also you could just hold someone's sleeve and then never get the heel hook. And the, Maybe. Just- it could make it exciting, but it could also make it very not exciting. <laughs> There's a common misconception that Oh, if you if you're wearing a gi, then the heel hooks are so much more dangerous because of the friction and you can't escape. It's like I mean, it's kind of stupid logic because there's so many more grips you can take. The defenses are so much simpler if you're wearing a gi. You just grab someone's lapels or grab their sleeve and now it's like they're fucked. They can't, you know, so it, it requires much lower tech defenses to these finishes i find if you were wearing geese but still the idea of like combining like spider guards and things in with reaping and heel hooks i mean you're looking at systems that haven't even been developed yet like literally there's a vast amount of material there that could be explored and developed but i don't know if we're ever going to see it in the gi um do you think i mean this is sort of piggybacking off of your last answer there lachlan uh, and livia do you think that uh, with the addition of these submissions in the, you know, in the IBJJF landscape now, can they even come close to the same prestige that ADCC has? Because right now, Nogi Worlds is like, like you said, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a, it's, it's not a joke, but it's like compared to Gi Worlds, it's nowhere near the same amount of prestige compared to ADCC. It's, it's literally like an open compared to ADCC. It's nowhere near uh, as prestigious. I think certainly not immediately, but I think it's possible. I mean, I, I don't really know, but maybe in 10 years' time, we might be talking about it very differently. Um, but yeah, ADCC's got, you know, it's just such a cool tournament and they put it like all the production and so on that goes into it. Last year was amazing, that tournament. The invites and the trials it makes it really quite selective as well. And then uh, because it's every two years, it's a mm-hmm. bit more prestigious. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a different feel to it. I can see IBJJF doing the same thing that ADCC does where you have to qualify. I mean, IBJJF does it for the Gi Worlds, where as a black belt, you have to qualify to to actually compete in the worlds, right? They do it for Nogi Worlds as well. It's just less points, but I mean... Oh, they do? I thought it was like anyone can go. No, it's just... Did they change that, did they? Yeah, you need, uh, I don't know, 50 or 100 points or something, but it's still, you can go to, you know, enter all all the opens and, and into empty divisions and still win. I know, like... You know, just just so you can go. So it's not necessarily like you don't have to win a trial or anything. It's still hard to get the points, but they also don't really make a big de- like in the you go to the Gi Worlds. They have the Sunday. It's all finals, and then they have the finals run one after the other. It's a very big spectacle. And I did no Gi Worlds, and like you know, I'm just competing in my. I did the I got bronze a few years ago but you know i'm just competing on one of the mats while everyone else is competing they did change that a bit now like, yeah it. last yeah. year's worlds yeah. it was still not like gi worlds but it was at least you know the podium was on the main mat and it was one match at a time it would be good to have like yeah. okay guys we're coming in today is the finals day everyone just come in and watch it's just the black belt final. you know something like that to i think those sort of things add prestige to it because you know the way I did it, I felt like it just felt like oh, you know, yeah. your, your local tournament, but it happens to be a bronze medal. Yeah. You know, sorry. We had like um, the medals given out in the yeah. hallway. and Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um. 
it looks like an open. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's nowhere near like, that's one thing about ADCC is they're doing it right. Like what a show they had like the pyro and the the crowd was huge. I mean, who knows what that's going to look like now under this, uh, under the circumstances that we're in now, but like, it definitely would add prestige to be like one match at a time, you know, and, and a little bit more production value, but let's not forget IBJJF you know, a few years ago was doing tournaments in high school gyms and stuff. So it's, it is moving along, you know, I guess. Mm. I think, yeah, definitely having prize money. Uh, I think they do now. I'm not sure about no gear worlds for gear worlds. They do, but having prize money and recognizing their athletes, I think would be um, a positive step. Mm. Oh, for sure. They definitely need to pay their athletes, I think, and, and just make it worth their while. Well, thank you for the, your time, guys. I mean, I, I'm trying to be very mindful of time here because I know that you guys have to run. Um, I really do appreciate you going in deep with us on these ideas here. I guess just in terms of closing thoughts, is there any anything we haven't covered, any big picture advice that you would give to listeners looking to develop their style, kind of just high level do's and don'ts that we haven't discussed already? Yeah, so I think like, I think at first, early on, you know, up, up till Blue Belt, possibly there's just like a general basic fundamentals of jiu-jitsu that you want to learn and probably with a little bit of variety in there which might start to show you like which techniques you start to prefer my recommendation is towards blue belt or from blue belt on start developing a particular style something that's that's well established to be good but start getting good like that don't try to get good at everything at once focus on one particular thing that might be body type dependent might be age dependent might be fitness dependent definitely goal dependent what what are you actually are you wanting to be a competitor if so then make sure you're you're doing the style that's going to be prevalent in your division so that you're actually like up to date with exactly what's going on there if you're doing it for just a hobby then you can tend to you know you can play around a bit more in in terms of exactly what you want to work there and then once you've got your style start working adjacent like get good at that first and be very comfortable with it start doing adjacent styles from there until you start to broaden your game out and as you broaden that way you might find you your style like your your favorite moves actually start to shift into something else and that's fine too that's that's kind of how you progress and that's obviously applies from from escapes on bottom right through to guard takedowns top and submissions and finishes that's my summary. Liv. I agree. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> well, that was easy then. Awesome. Um, b- before we let you guys go, is there anything that you want to plug? Is there anywhere where people can find you or learn more about your systems and your techniques? Yes, I've got, uh, obviously, you got Instagram, uh, Lachlan underscore Giles, and you got... Uh, Livia underscore Giles or Livia dot Giles. I don't know. <laughs> Livia dot Giles. Yep. Uh, I've got the YouTube channel, Absolute MMA St. Kilda, and I've got a bunch of instructionals through BJJ Fanatics as well. So uh, covering guard passing, a bunch of guard things, guard leg attention. locks, front head lock. Yeah. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I will let you guys go again to both of you. Thank you so much for spending your time here with us. Greatly appreciated. Stay safe out there. I know that the situation is challenging in Australia right now, so hopefully it gets better soon. Maybe someday we'll be able to come see you. That would be awesome. Thanks for being on the show, you guys. Big fans. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much.